Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I trust you're well and that God has been faithful to you this entire week. Has that been the case? That's good. Cell phones off, Bibles open, hearts tuned in. If you're new to Calvary, I don't know what you've expected or you've heard, but it's pretty simple. It's a Bible study. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. We have been in John for 65 weeks. We're now in chapter 15, so we're moving very... Well, it depends if you want to say slowly or rapidly. It depends who you are. I think we're moving around at a good clip. But... um, we give attention to the Scripture as it is being taught, and if you feel like it's too much for you to handle, as we bow our heads and pray, rather than you getting up in the middle of the service and drawing attention to yourself, while we bow our heads and pray, you could move to a number of locations we have around campus, uh, in the back, outside, etc., so that you could leave and move whenever you'd like, and, and uh, there'd be no issue. We'd appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fellowship, the connection we make with each other. We have a common goal, we have a common purpose, and there's things that bind us together in that commonality. We're we're agreeing over the truth of Scripture, we're agreeing over the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we're agreeing over the hope that we have in eternal life. And in that agreement, we gather together as a family, as your family, as your people. Lord, we admit to you that we fall short of your glory and we fall short of the standard. And we are so thankful for your grace, your unmerited favor that has been extended toward us because of what your son Jesus did for us on the cross. That one act enables you to act toward us with such freedom and such graciousness and such lavish provision. Thank you for that. As we study, give us ears and eyes to see and hear the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a a movie years ago put out, Forrest Gump, and you're going to remember this line where in the line in the movie he says, life is like a box of chocolates because you never know what you're going to get. Well, Jesus would say to the analogy we want to look at this morning, life is like a bunch of grapes. You never know what you're going to get. You might get some branches that are life-giving and life-producing and others that are dead wood that need to be cleared away. We, in chapter 15, and I've been looking forward for a long time to get into it, learn about real life. Extended metaphor is given in this chapter about the vine, the branches, and the gardener. It's a parable that Jesus gives. And Jesus was ever the master storyteller, weaving the basic truths of life into a story so that we would appreciate it in a deeper, greater manner. That's what we have here. This extended metaphor 
of a vineyard. We're going to walk into a vineyard and understand truths about life. If you lived around the Mediterranean world, then or now, one of the most familiar sights to you would be growing grapes for the production of wine. It was a mainstay in Judaism. Wherever you would look, you would you would see grapes being grown. You would understand the symbolism behind that. I'll explain that in a moment. As we go through chapter 15, there's some highlights, some lessons that jump out to us. Number one, we're going to learn about relationship, what it means to be related to God properly. Number two, we're going to learn about hardship. We're going to learn why God uses hardship to prune our lives. And the other thing we're going to learn about is discipleship. Some would-be disciples aren't always true disciples. Some so-called branches aren't really true branches. And Jesus will make a distinction between the true fruit-bearing branches and those that are not really His. You may have heard a story about a bandit, a notorious bandit years ago from Mexico named Jorge Rodriguez. Jorge wrecked havoc on the good people of Texas. He would scurry across the border, rob banks, and before anybody could catch him, he'd hightail it back to his mountain hideaway in Mexico. So eventually the United States thought, we've got to take action. They sent their best detective down to arrest Jorge Rodriguez and recover all the money back. The detective went to Mexico, went to a town where he thought Jorge would be, and sure enough, as he walked into a bar, there in the corner sat Jorge Rodriguez. The detective walked up to the table, pulled out his gun, pointed it at Jorge, and said, tell me where the money is or I'm going to blow you away. Just then, a man walked up to the detective and said, Senor, I am sorry, but Jorge cannot speak English. He has no idea what you just said. Would you like me to translate for you? He said, yeah, I do want you to translate. You tell Jorge that he tells me where the money is or I'm going to kill him. I'm going to shoot him right here, right now. So this helpful translator, Juan Garcia was his name, turns to Jorge Rodriguez and in Spanish they're talking back and forth. And in Spanish, Jorge tells Juan that if that detective goes a mile out of town to a now defunct town, there's a well. And if he would just scurry down the well and take out the third row of bricks, he would find $3 million worth of gold. After this little conversation, mind you, all in Spanish, Juan now turns toward the detective and said, Senor, I'm sorry, Jorge says he cannot remember where he put the money. You're going to have to shoot him. We would call Juan a hypocrite, a pretender, someone who seems to be helpful but is not really helpful, somebody worse actually than Jorge who stole the money. One of the underlying themes, and you'll see it as just a minute we read through the first eight verses of chapter 15, is that Jesus is showing the difference between the real and the authentic, the genuine and the pretender's. The branches that bear fruit, the branches that are fruitless. Let's look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 8 together. 
I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Here it is. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples. Now a question comes up. Just in reading this, we understand that Jesus is dealing with the upper room discourse. It's that last speech before he goes to the cross. Why does Jesus suddenly launch into an analogy, a parable, if you will, about a farmer, a vineyard, branches, Where does that come from? What's going on? Well, there's perhaps a little clue. And we just sort of skipped over it last week, but you'll notice that the last phrase of chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, what? Read it in your Bible. It says, arise, let us go from here. So now we have to picture Jesus and his men getting up from the table. They were in the upper room in Jerusalem. They had the Passover supper. Jesus had been briefing them in chapter 14. Now it's time to get up. So that we believe chapters 15 and 16 are spoken by Jesus to his men as they are walking. Because in chapter 17, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. In chapter 18, he is arrested. So probably they get up, they walk out the door, and they leave the southwestern portion of Upper Jerusalem, walking down toward the Kidron Valley, and will eventually be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I can't tell you for sure, but it could be that Jesus and his disciples passed by a vineyard along the way, maybe in the Kidron Valley. And as they were going by the vineyard, Jesus used that as a way to teach his disciples. Or, here's a thought. As they were going down, on their left-hand side would be this enormous building called the temple. And one of the most noticeable features, if you were to just look at the temple from the front, were two huge bronze doors, and embossed upon the bronze doors were golden vines and grapes. They went from top to bottom. They had been made in Greece. Some estimate the value of those doors to be at $12 million if you were to remake them today. This vine, these grapes, the the vineyard that was depicted on the doors was there for a very important reason. Because the vineyard in the Old Testament depicted the nation of Israel. It was a very common idea that Israel, the nation of Israel, was God's fruitful vineyard or vine. There's many scriptures that speak to that. Psalm 80 is one. There's several in Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But the most famous comes in Isaiah chapter 5. 
In Isaiah chapter 5, it begins by saying, Let me sing to my well-beloved a song regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. And he dug it and he cleared away its stones and he planted in it the choicest vine. And it says in Isaiah 5, he expected it to bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And then the question comes, what will he do? Since he's done everything he can to bring forth good fruit, but it's brought forth wild grapes, what will he do? And the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, says he will tear down its hedges, he will destroy and burn the vineyard. And then it says, for the vineyard of the Lord God Almighty is the house of Israel. So they have always lived under the impression that we are God's vine, we are God's vineyard. Here comes Jesus and says, I am the true vine, not Israel. And i tell you why that's important. Because though Israel as a nation had been depicted as God's vineyard, God's vine, always in context they were God's fruitless vine, degenerate vine. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. The only one that's ever been rightly connected to God is me, his son. And the only one who can connect you rightly to God is me, his son. Something else is going on. There's a drama that is unfolding this very night. How many disciples are with Jesus when they leave the upper room? Eleven, not twelve. Judas has left the bunch, and right at that very moment, he is plotting the betrayal and crucifixion of Christ. He's a fruitless branch. The ones that are left are the disciples. And so, as they perhaps walk by a vineyard or see the doors of the temple, because of the drama that's happening in their relationship, Jesus gives this parable. For our purpose, we want to look at three things this morning. Three things, three distinguishing marks of those in relationship with God. If you're a Christian, a true Christian, these marks will be in your life. Number one, you are connected to Christ. I know that sounds very obvious, but it needs to be explored. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Look down at verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the you're, you're, you're the branches. So what are you personally? You're a, you're a branch. I'm a branch. You know what a branch is? It's a little twig. You're a twig. You're a little piece of wood. Now, I put it to you that way because sometimes we get this like inflated idea of our importance. I'm a special messenger of God. You're a twig. (laughs) In fact, what's interesting about grape branches is they were utterly useless, totally unimportant. The only thing they were used for once they were dead, they couldn't even be used to heat your house. They would just be used as kindling to start the real wood. It had no value unless it was connected. And when it was connected, that's when life flowed through it. And if it was planted in good soil... It would bring life to others. Your life takes on real significance as long as you're connected to Christ. When it comes to any lasting significance, certainly any spiritual significance, you and I are worthless unless we are connected to Him. The branch must be connected to the vine. You are the branches. We are connected to Christ. 
Now, I, I want to explore that a little bit further. When I say you're connected, I'm connected, we're connected, this is what I mean. It has to be a personal connection. Your own personal connection that results in new life. Eleven times in these eight verses, Jesus uses the pronoun you, you, plural, to his disciples. You this, you that, you must be this, you abide. You abide in me, I'll abide in you. That means it's got to be personal. You've got to be a part of this equation. A second word that Jesus repeats a lot, six times, is the word fruit. So the connection, follow that together, put those together. The connection that is made must be personal and it has to be fruitful. That is, it has to have the evidence of new life. Some people think that all they need is a ceremonial connection. Have you met people like that? Um, in those days, many would say, well, well, I've been circumcised as a Jewish youngster and I keep the Sabbath day and I go to the festivals several times a year. I'm in the temple worshiping. I go through all of the ceremonies and all of the rituals like a person today when you ask them about their connection with Christ. All they can say is, well, I've been baptized when I was a baby. Or I've been christened when I was younger. Or I was confirmed after that. They will name the rituals that they've been through. Not the personal connection. You recall when John the Baptist was performing baptism down at the Jordan River and many came to be baptized. John said to them, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? As if to say, you might come into this water and get wet and get baptized, but if that's what you're relying on to be connected to God, you better think twice. So it can't just be a ceremonial connection. It, it also can't just be a genetic connection. You say, the Jewish people were Israel's vineyard, the vine. And they boasted in that fact, we're God's vine, we've been God's vine for a long time. Um, we're untouchable. We can trace our heritage back to Moses and to Abraham. We're children of Abraham. They boasted in that fact. Their genetic connection to their forefathers. Just like a person today would say, I was raised in a Christian home. My grandpa was a preacher. My uncle, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Again, I think of John the Baptist when he was baptizing at the Jordan River and all of those religious people came around most all of whom were Jewish. John the Baptist, as if he could read their minds, said to them, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these very stones. Your connection to God must be more than your heritage or your religious experiences. Now let's just stop here for a moment. Put a marker in this section of your Bible, if you don't mind, even a finger, and turn back one book. Turn back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. I want us to look at another vineyard parable. It's very similar, but it has a different kind of a twist to it. And as you're reading with me, I want you to keep in mind what I just quoted to you out of Isaiah chapter 5, that whole vineyard analogy of Israel in the Old Testament. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. 
Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers, went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him and they cast him out. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to figure out what he's talking about. Even these Pharisees are going to figure it out, as you're going to see. God in the Old Testament sent prophets time and time again to the vineyard, the house of Israel. And they castigated those prophets, or they beat them, and in many cases they killed them. Think of Jeremiah, think what they did to Isaiah, etc., etc. So so it gets better. Verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. That was their emotional reaction to this parable. Now, probably Jesus is referring to what's going to happen after his resurrection in 70 AD, when the Romans are going to come against Jerusalem and destroy it. And Jerusalem will be now in Gentile hands in Roman occupation with no real Jewish influence for years and years to come. But continue on. Then he looked at them and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders has rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. He spoke the parable against them, the vineyard, the vine of God, because they had trusted in their ceremonies and in their heritage, which wasn't enough. I find a lot of people, I find so many people that try to pull this off today. They really don't want to surrender their lives to God, but they'll, they'll allow a little bit of God to come in their lives. Let me put God here on this shelf so I can manage him. It's never a total commitment. It's just sort of, oh, I'll attend church every now and then, especially Christmas and Easter, and I'll sing a few of the songs, and my family likes to drag me, so I'll go. And so God, yeah, but not really. Let me read to you something Wilbur Reese wrote some time back that I think sums it up. He writes, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. The first distinguishing characteristic of a true disciple is he's connected to Christ 
And it's a real connection. It's a personal connection and the result is new life. The second is he's or she is cared for by the Father. Cared for by the Father. I love this part. I'm the true vine. Now get this. My Father is the farmer, we would say. Vine dresser. Grape grower. If you want to be really technical, viticulturist. That's what they're called, grape growers. Viticulturist. Now, he's the vine dresser. He's the farmer. In verse 2, Jesus tells us of his work. He strips away dead wood and burns it, gets rid of it, the false branches. And he tends by pruning the true branches. Here's a picture of God as caregiver. A picture of somebody with delight bending over the vine, wanting to grow prize grapes. I don't know if you know any real gardeners. I mean, you know, the real gardener, they've got the boots, they've got the tools, they've got the lingo, and it just, you put them in a garden and it works. They know what to do. They know the terms, they're good at it. My dad, we had about an acre and a half growing up, almost two acres, and he loved to grow things. And he grew grapes on the side of the yard. We had several, uh, we had a little vineyard going on there. And uh, to my dad, it was never a chore. He loved doing that. For me, it was a chore. In fact, it was one of my chores. I had to water those things and tend them and fertilize them and cover them. And I learned a little bit, not, not as much as he learned, because he has a green thumb, I have like a brown thumb. I, I'll, I'll kill the thing. Don't let me do it too long. But for him, it was never a chore. He loved his garden. He loved his grapes. Now, I want you to picture your God, the creator of heaven and earth, with that kind of care on your life. He tends you. He looks to see what needs to be fixed or taken away or added. And with meticulous care, every single branch he knows, and you're one of those branches. Even though he's got a pretty big vineyard, he's got millions upon millions of branches around the world. How does God manage to keep up looking after all of his kids, all of these branches? Because some of us point one direction, some of us are twisted in another direction. I mean, we're, we're, we're so different, we're so many. Well, that's the beauty of it. Um, I, I was studying this week about a bird called a guillemot. A guillemot is a bird, a small bird that lives up in the uh, Arctic Sea region. And it, it usually congregates in these rocky cliffs in the northern coastal areas of the world. Guillemots gather together by the thousands in crowded places and the mother guillemot will lay her eggs in a long row. She lays her eggs and right next to her eggs another mother guillemot will lay her eggs and then another and then another. So you see this long line of eggs. If you and I look at the eggs, you can't tell them apart. They look identical. But each mother knows her eggs. And studies have shown that if you remove an egg to a faraway place, the mother guillemot will be able to find it and bring it back to its exact spot. Imagine the kind of engineering required for that brain to know that. God put that there. Now, if God can engineer that kind of honing device in a bird brain, (laughs) am I right? It is a bird brain. Then certainly can't God's mind keep track of every single twist of every single branch in his vineyard? And my point is simple. You are never off God's radar screen. 
He knows every twist and turn in your branch. Verse 2, he does something about that. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, here's the word we don't like, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, don't misunderstand. Then say that he'll, he'll make you a prune. He'll turn you into a prune-faced believer. You ever met one of those? But he'll prune you. Caparizo is the Greek word. It means to cleanse by cutting. Cleanse by cutting. In fact... In the very next verse, you are already clean. The word clean is the same word as katharizo and to prune, to clean by cutting. That's the idea. To take excess foliage off of the branch to make it more fruitful. So I did a little bit of studying on this. And I discovered that viticulturists, grape growers, that the most important part of their job, besides planting and watering and fertilizing, the most important thing they do is pruning. And they do two things. They prune dead wood because it breeds disease. They get rid of the dead branches. It'll breed disease. Number two, they'll, they'll prune or cut back live tissue because they want to save the sap. They don't want the sap wasted on extraneous growth. So they do a few things. They, they do what's called, number one, pinching. They'll pinch the new growth off of the top so it retards its growth. It grows slowly. He can manage the growth that way. Number two, there's topping where he'll take one to two, even three feet of the tendrils that grow and lop them off, save them to be planted later. But sometimes the top growth can be so much that the whole thing will die. And the third thing he does is called thinning, where he'll actually take bunches of grapes and remove some so that there's not too many grapes so that the ones that remain will get bigger and sweeter, tastier. That's what it means to a viticulturist, a grape grower, to prune. Now here's a question for you. What does pruning mean to us? I can sum it up in one word. Ouch! Right? Pruning always hurts. Anytime God applies the knife and cuts away at our lives, we don't like it. In fact, if branches could talk, they might say, how could a farmer of love allow this to happen to his poor little branch? Something like that. It always involves pain. Why why would God do it then? If it hurts, why would God do it? Is it because God has a mean streak and he gets off on seeing us hurt? No. Jesus said that it might bring forth more fruit. In fact, and we'll look more in depth next week, but there's three stages. There's fruit, there's more fruit, and there's much fruit. Those are the progressive stages Jesus takes us through. Fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Now this helps. This helps answer a question that we've all asked from time to time in life, and that is why do bad things happen to God's people? I think it's a better question than why do bad things happen to good people, because the Bible says there's none who are good, no, not one. But why do bad things happen to God's people? They're in covenant relationship. They're connected to Him. Why would something bad happen? Here's my answer. Be very careful what you call bad. Because it actually might be good. Joseph is an example. Young Joseph was the brunt of jealousy by his brothers. He was sold to the Midianites, placed in a hole, taken as a prisoner to Egypt, 
falsely accused, lived in jail for a few years, all of the things that we would say, bad, 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 bad. Now, later on, when he becomes second in command over the entire world and his brothers come to him and he reveals himself to them, remember what he said to them? As for you, you meant this as bad or evil, but God meant it for, for what? For good. What I would have called bad, God used it and it was good. Look at the good it has done. Look at the good it has done in my life. So be very careful when you assign the term bad to something, God may be using it for something that is good. So here's another question as we're working our way through the text. How does God prune us? How does He do it? I'll give you three ways. Number one, by Scripture. Number two, by suffering. And number three, by stupidity. Now, I've got to explain that. I know. The the first one is easy to understand. God prunes us through Scripture. Verse 3, Jesus said, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. They were being pruned by His word. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. You know how it works. Sometimes you read through the Bible and you come across a passage that is very comforting to you. You love it and you underline it and you memorize it and it's your life verse and you put it on little memory cards. Then you, at other times, read through the Bible and you read something you don't like because it doesn't comfort you. It confronts you. And you read it and you go, ouch, I don't like that. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, or better translation, sharper than the sharpest knife that cuts deep into our inmost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. Now, do you let the Bible cut you? I hope you do. I hope you don't say, I don't like this sermon. I'm going to walk out. Or I don't like this verse of Scripture. I'm going to close the book. Let it cut. It's how God prunes you. Scripture. Second way God does it. Suffering. Suffering. Pain. Pain cuts away fleshly desires. Pain deals with sinful habits that we have. You know, what do you think about when you're suffering? You think about anything else? You might be thinking about other things in life. You've got plans. Then this huge episode of suffering comes in your life. And what are you thinking about now? Nothing else but the pain. And it helps you think differently about life. And what you thought was big yesterday isn't so big today. And it helps you reevaluate. And it cuts away what doesn't need to be there. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. I think he put it the best. He, he could just write. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Chew on that for a moment. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. David stated it this way in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You know, if you're a parent, you, you get this. Um, or if, if, if you just remember you're growing up, did your parents ever spank you? Ever? Who got spanked? I want to see an honest show of hands. The rest of you, I don't know if I want to know you. <laughs> I remember getting spanked. And I used to challenge my parents whenever they did. I said, you don't love me. No, it's because we know you and we love you. 
that you're going to get this spanking. Have you ever seen a brat in a store? You know what a brat is. You, there's, you have a brat alert in your mind. You, you can spot them. You see, you hear what they're saying and how they're acting. You go, man, I want to spank that child. <laughs> God doesn't want his kids to be brats. So he disciplines us. You could look at it. That's another word. Spanks us. Prunes us. So by scripture, by suffering, here's a third. I got to explain myself by stupidity. Sometimes we suffer because of the stupid choices we make, because of the sinful choices we make. And now we're suffering as a result of our own stupid choice. But what I want to say to you is even then God uses that to prune you. That's where Romans 8.28 comes in. For we know that in all things, God is working together, bringing those elements together, synthesizing all of the good and the bad and the ugly. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. So whether it's by Scripture that confronts you or suffering that is from the outside or stupidity that is from the inside, God can use it all to prune. That's why James writes this in James chapter 1. Dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. One final point, and we close with this. Third mark, a third characteristic of a true disciple. If the first one is you're connected to Christ and the second one is you're cared for by the Father, the third one is you're consistent over time. Consistent over time. And there's a word that is used also frequently in our text, eight times here, it's the word abide. Look at it with me. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now think of the immediate context. Who's the guy that left the group? His name is what? Judas. He's not there right now. Only 11 disciples are left. Judas is a fake branch. He's an unbeliever. He's a pretend believer. He as a branch has left, but God will take him away. He's called the son of perdition. There's no hope for Judas. He is lost. There's 11 ones that are remaining, and Jesus says, abide in me. The word abide, meno is the Greek word, means stay put or remain, or stay around. Here's the point. True disciples stay disciples. One of the distinguishing characteristics of a true God follower, the evidence that you're the real deal, is that you continue in the connectedness with Him. That's part of the evidence. The only legitimate believer is the abiding believer. Now, John was in that upper room and John was taking that walk and recorded what Jesus said on that walk that are in words in front of us. He would also write another letter later on, 1 John. And in chapter 2, I quote to you verse 19, written by the same apostle. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest or seen clearly that none of them were of us. 
That does not mean a person who leaves our church and is fellowshipping at another church. Don't quote that for that. It's speaking about people who leave the connection with Christ. And my mind goes to some casualties that still break my heart to this day. They are never really of us. A true disciple abides, continues, stays put. In closing, I ask three questions for you this morning. Are you connected? Is it your own personal connection? Is it your own personal conversion? Number two, are you close? Does abiding, you know, you can't get closer than a branch stuck into a vine where the sap from that vine is finding its way through the nourishing fibers of that branch to produce a cluster of grapes. Are you connected? Are you close to the Lord? Is your relationship intimate or are you a little bit distant, aloof, formal, stilted? Third thing, are you cut? See, if you're the real deal, you'll stay put for the pruning. If you're the real deal, you'll hang around even when that farmer comes with the knife or the shears. By the way, Of all of the acts that a viticulturist does to the vine, he is closest to the branch when he's pruning. See, you can fertilize and water from afar. You can superintend from afar. But you have to get right on that branch, hold it in your hand, and meticulously cut at the right spot. The the very times when you suffer, when you're being pruned, and you say, God, where are you? He's closer to you than ever. And what is he doing? Well, when, when that farmer cuts away at that little branch, a, a true pruning leaves not much of the branch, but you can see the vine more clearly. The vine is more prominent than the branch. And I would dare say that when you and I get pruned by Scripture, suffering, stupidity, whatever it is, that the aim of God is that more of Jesus would be apparent in our lives and less of us. Make sense? It's called fruit. We'll talk more about that next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times that we have acted as the farmer, trying to be in charge, or trying to claim anything of ourselves. The truth is, you, Father, are the farmer, it's your vine. Jesus is the main stem. And we, being connected to Christ, are thus connected in relation to you. We can't have any relation to you at all unless we're connected to the vine. Lord, forgive us for trying to grow our own direction many times. Or trying to plug our little branch into some other vine for nourishment other than Christ. Bring us back to the simplicity of nourishment, intimacy, and fruitfulness in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658.
Thank you, and God bless.